Okay, it looks like we're live. Sue John Capati, how you doing, man? Doing well. Wow. We're back to Tech Chat Tuesdays. We are. We're both in the office today, it seems, too, in yes. different rooms. Hey, hey, hey. So, yes, it's Tech Chat Tuesday for Tuesday, July 26, 2022. I'm Ken Rimple. Sue John Capadia. That guy over there. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, we're here to talk about uh, news and stuff we find interesting. And it's been a while uh, to quote a 90s grunge tune. And uh, um, so, uh, Sue John, you might wonder why I'm wearing this Hawaiian shirt. I do. I mean, most I people like wonder. Other, I feel like there's other things that should go along with the Hawaiian shirt. But why are you wearing the Hawaiian shirt, Ken? Well, because um, I forgot I, that I grabbed it and that's what I wore today. But mainly because last week my daughter got her wisdom teeth out and I thought it was hilarious that the first thing she did when she saw me, she cried hysterically and she yelled at me about my Hawaiian shirt. And then she said, it's your Hawaiian shirt. I'm like, what's your dad? You're not even in Hawaii. I'm like, perfect. That's the painkiller. That's what happens. Yeah. The painkillers, yeah. Waking up from that stuff is, is bizarre. She loved everyone, and uh, it was all about my Hawaiian shirt because I'm not in I Hawaii. Had, so years ago, I had a sinus surgery, a sinoplasty, a deviated septum, ho hoping mm -hmm. that that would help with sinus issues and, and headaches. But they very painful, and they have you on very strong painkillers. And after I came to, my parents were telling me that I was saying all sorts of stuff. And it's same thing. I was like loving everyone, loving life, and thanking everyone profusely. It was. <laughs> Pretty funny stuff. Anyway, that's why I'm wearing the Hawaiian shirt. Um, okay, so let's uh, go through a few things. First of all, I want to talk about some stuff that we're doing at Chariot here, at least uh, some content we have. We have reached our 20th year anniversary this year at Chariot. We've mentioned it a few times in the past, but this is kind of like uh, the official beginning of some of the articles and content that's going to come out around that. So our fearless leader, Michael Rappaport, um, put together a 20-year journey, uh, kind of like a talk about how we were formed, uh, what he did to kind of shepherd the, the projects early on, his original management team that got him started, and basically how, uh, and there's the original management team, the, the, the people who helped start the company. Think about this, like 20 years ago, we were worried about dates and Y2K, right? And yes. today we're worried about AI taking over the world. Like a lot of, a lot of stuff has changed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> different kind of intelligence problems, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's it's a great article if you're curious about uh, a company how it's uh, weathered 20 years of tech and changes. So that's up on chariotsolutions.com slash blog. Um, and another recent one, Chris Burster, he's a, an engineer at Chariot. Uh, he had a good article on uh, doing Lambda development uh, using serverless framework and local stack. So the local stack project is uh, basically mocks for all sorts of pieces of AWS um, there's like a free API and then there's like a, a pay for dashboard if you're looking for it. Um, but uh, basically, if you want a fake S3 or a fake Cognito, a fake whatever. So as you're running unit tests, you can you can make calls to what looks like AWS and get good, you know, expected results from it so you can debug your code. Um, so this article that uh, Chris wrote kind of goes through uh, using Python, uh, I believe. Uh, yeah, using Python uh, and the serverless framework, you know, building a sample uh, and then, uh, you know, communicating with a fake stack with it. Um, so, for example, like uh, here's, a, here's a little like preview of like what it can do. So you can see that like normally the AWS command, which is your CLI command, does things like in the Dynamo database, you can have a create a table and it goes up to the real Amazon to do that. Well, if you launch local stack, you can tell it the endpoint URL. This is one of the features of the CLI and say, instead of going to the public URI 
for uh, you know for for Amazon, go to the localhost fake copy of that and run the fake DynamoDB, um, which is a database itself, but runs locally instead. Uh, so you can emulate uh, a database and see how it reacts when you're writing unit test code or running locally and emulating things you don't normally have. Fake it till you make it. Fake it till you <laughs> And then later. Um, so yeah, so local stack, check that out. That's a good quick kind of overview of that. Whoops. Uh, and that is Chris Burster's blog article, which I suddenly lost. Okay. Uh, if you're curious about some of our other content, uh, in addition to the blog, you can check out uh, our playlists on YouTube. So if you go to youtube.com slash chariot solutions, uh, you can hit the playlist list and you'll see things like uh, Philly ETE 2021, uh, which is all of our content from that show. And soon there'll be the ETE 2022 content within the next couple of weeks. So you can see all the talks from that as well, um, as, as well as many other things, including our Tech Chat Tuesdays. And just another reminder, you can hit us on all the various podcast platforms. So, for example, there we are in Apple Podcasts. Um, please rate us. We have one rating. <laughs> but uh, I figured I'd bring this up, just point out that, you know, on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Podcasts, a number of other places we are listed. And so if you found us on YouTube and you want to subscribe to the audio feed, please feel free to do so. There's a lot of stuff in the back catalog, including hundreds and hundreds and hours of, of interviews with uh, various open source people. All right. So that's all the chariot stuff. Let's start off with some news. So um, that was not the first one I wanted to show, but uh, okay, fine. We'll show that one first. Um, first article, I decided uh, after working with a fair number of developers over the last couple of years that uh, I keep running into a lot of people that don't really know too much about SQL, uh, especially if you're focusing mostly on, let's say, front-end or what have you, uh, you may not know some of the more advanced things that you can do. So if you happen to be someone whose uh, experience in SQL is basic select statements uh, and a simple insert, it's worthwhile digging in. Um, so for example, some of the things you can do with SQL some developers think, well, I can just do this on the client side. So I'll fetch all the rows and I'll massage the rows and bring back what I want or do custom filtering or custom ordering or what have you. When in fact, you can do things on the SQL side that you just couldn't easily do or quickly do on, on the front end. So this is a nice little overview of like the various operators you might not run into. So for example, maybe you have, uh, you know, data that's of, you know, two uh, or more types that are common, like agents and customers are people. Uh, and you want to be able to union and say, give me all the uh, data that are both from agents and customers against orders. Um, you know, this is good for like, uh, for union, it's good for like uh, different subtypes of things. So you've got like a, a user who's a customer, a user who's a, uh, you know, uh, specialist of some sort in your company, and you want to bring them all back in one query result. Union is really useful kind of combines both queries together. If you're an OO developer, is this sort of akin to polymorphism, one way to do it in the database. Yeah, that's right. You usually have a type in the outer thing. Sometimes you have just the children. Sometimes you have one big parent with a bunch of different fields. Yeah, there's a bunch of ways to model it. But bottom line, if you have to do multiple queries normally to put it all together, you can have all those multiple queries together in one SQL statement. So for example, you can say select from one table, uh, union select from the other table. Right. So um, not sure I, I like the query example here, but whatever. Um, and then you could do things like uh, intersection. So union and union all, I guess that's a, a specific thing 
uh, where it doesn't deduplicate the rows. Uh, I would guess it's kind of like select all. Uh, but anyway, till so this day. Various, uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Hit it. I was saying, till this day in my career, there has been nothing as satisfying as getting a complex SQL query working correctly and uh, efficiently. And then and looking what you would have to do if you wrote the code for it. Yeah. Right. It's like, wow, it, it works. Okay. If you want to get good yeah. at SQL, bear yourself with a business person that ha needs crazy reports. You will get good at SQL really <laughs> fast. <laughs> Boy, is that true? I remember a long time ago in my career, there was a, a project that was on, and they were doing, and this is way back when, they were doing all their queries using like, um, uh, what was it? It was like Hibernate, right? So they were using like Hibernate queries to try to write complex reports. Uh -huh. And it was taking like 30 minutes to run a report. I'm like, do it in SQL. And they thought I was crazy. I said, I'll tell you what, in this sprint, I'll give you both. So I, I barely got through the one with the, you know, with, with the Hibernate code and thought to myself, this is nuts and it doesn't perform well. And then I wrote a simple subselect query and uh, with group by and stuff like that. And I brought it back and it, and it was like really much less than subsecond. And they were like, all right, you're right. We'll use SQLs for reports. That's, that's why That's why it's called hibernate. You got to go into hibernation while it's running. <laughs> Intersect is basically what fits in both, you know, and so on. Uh, you can say, bring me the ones that are in uh, one table and not the other. That's except. So bring me everything from the first query, except the ones that show up in the second query. Subqueries are a really big deal. If you don't know subqueries in SQL, man, that is like the, the key to happiness right there. Um, being able to query, what's that? I said, get, out, said, of get out. Get out. Get out of here. Yeah. So I, I like them because you can use them inside of the where clause to find collections of things from other places. You can sometimes use a sub select in the select clause. You can say, bring me some piece of data from other query and, and bring it back. You can use it in the from clause in some databases to synthesize a table during a query. Um, one thing you'll find as you start doing some of this stuff is it might look elegant and perform terribly because the amount of work you're trying to get done too. So you do have to understand what you're doing with these tools. Um, if you're writing a very, very uh, heavy processing query, it could take a while as well on the, on the back end, especially if you're computing columns or things like that. What I, what I generally see is folks using, you know, they end up building really complex reporting queries against a transactional database that wasn't designed for reporting. So if you get to yeah. that point where like, this is taking too long and this is too hard to build this query, you may be doing something that that database model wasn't intended for. You may have to revisit that. Yeah, and that's where people start doing things like exporting the data marts or like making, you know, queryable reporting databases out of a stream of data from another database, which certainly is a valid thing to do. There's the... Uh, you know, this is kind of like a, a, a totaling query where it brings a sum back. Um, you know, you might see like, here's that example. I'm querying from agents, but actually as I'm querying from agent, I might query, you know, something else. Now, what's the miss here is there's no correlation. So this is going to be bring me the agent code for every agent. And oh, by the way, get me the total for all orders without like pointing to a particular agent. You do want to kind of tie it into the agent you're looking at. So you put a you put a from clause with a where clause inside of here too, which they might be getting at here at some point. But you can see all sorts of special stuff you can do with subqueries. You can put a subquery in when. That's pretty typical uh, if you're saying, is this thing in a list of valid things over here? You could do that. And by the way, if you're thinking you could do this through things like joins in many cases, 
that's what the, the optimizer in SQL generally does. It finds way to still like join the data or pull the data in different ways for you. As long as you can express what you want, it figures out the how. So you don't have to write all that code to do all the fetching. Yeah. If, for those who are listening, you know, if you're either earlier in your career or later in your career, but SQL is not something you've picked up yet, I highly recommend spending time doing that. Even in the world of cloud and the world of NoSQL and um, all these other technologies that are out there, knowing SQL is still very valuable, still very relevant. Um, I haven't been on a single project where ha having knowledge of SQL was not important. Yeah. Totally agree. So this just keeps going on and on. I don't want to spend the whole time in this, but the point being this should kind of stimulate your interest and in hopefully some SQL stuff if you don't know a lot of these things. And I will say that whatever dialect he's writing this in and the, and the author of this, I don't see the author name on here. It's on uh, realpythonproject.com. Um, so I'm not sure if that's that, that person's website, but uh, you know, whatever dialect they're using, I don't know. Just keep in mind, you'll also want to check out if you're using Postgres or using Oracle or using you know, my, my SQL or what have you, take a look at the dialect and the features in that dialect as well. Okay, next item. Let's boycott Wayland. Um, what is Wayland? Well, Wayland is the replacement, allegedly, for the Xorg X Windows server. Okay, what the heck is that? If you're a Linux person, you're already kind of rolling your eyes. But if you run Linux on the desktop, uh, that graphical user interface is called X Windows. Uh, and it's been around since the 80s. Um, you know, Sun Microsystems, I believe, had something to do with some of this stuff. Um, and, you know, early, early on. So there's this, this open source project called Xorg, which is a, a window manager uh, for, called X11 window manager in, in Xorg. Um, Wayland is an attempt to completely rewrite that. The problem with Wayland is um, only really GNOME applications perform well and work with it as well as they could, uh, and a lot of other things fail. So just out of curiosity, if you're curious about trialing Wayland and you're a Linux user, you may want to look at this first before, you know, some people will switch over things and reconfigure their Linux environments. If you go down the Wayland route, just keep in mind, some things, a lot of things might not quite work the way you expect them to using Wayland. And I believe Wayland might be, not sure if it's the default now on, um, on Ubuntu, but it's a very easy to select option for the, the window manager. Just be aware that you might run into problems running it. I, the last time I ran um, Linux on the desktop, I did it be, out of frustration with my Surface Book, which led to more frustration because I put Linux on a Surface Book, which meant the drivers didn't work. So <laughs> then I gave up and went back to the Mac. But uh, we do have some developers that, that we know that, that work with X11. Uh, I'd be curious to see what your experience is in Wayland. Uh, if you have anything to say about it, uh, just let us know at TechCast. I'm just kind of curious if anyone's run into using Wayland and having trouble. All right. So Daniel Seeger uh, has a blog article up uh, in, uh, about uh, your code doesn't have to be a mess. So this is just kind of some thoughts and meditations on, um, you know, trying to clean your code up. Um, and in general, uh, I think the biggest problem with code to me is that when people leave dead code somewhere, you're not sure what's dead, you're not sure what's not dead, and you're digging through it trying to find things. So this, he has a couple of different pieces. He started off with a really simple post that basically said, keep it simple, stupid, which is a very old, that, I heard that in college back in the 80s, you know, uh, it's an old uh, developer term from the 70s. 
Um, keep things simple. Have things do one thing uh, and build up from one thing to a collection of things. Um, but uh, he put that out there, and I guess he got a bit roasted for it. So uh, then he had a little bit more in here. So, for example, first, you know, start off with clear goals. Make sure you understand what your software is trying to, to solve. Keep them visible to you. Keep an eye on them. Um, you know, and as you're working on something, make it do one thing and do it well. Uh, and I guess the Unix philosophy is lots of little things that work together. Set up constraints. So, like, what does your software solve and what does it explicitly not solve? Um, try to constrain the scope of something. I know that's always been my problem is I tend to expand out into things and worry too much about all the other uh, things that I, I probably shouldn't be focusing on when I'm writing a small piece of software. Um, so set up a constraint for each thing. What does it do? What does it uh, not do? And stick to those things. One of the other things that I think is really tough for developers, especially if you're kind of getting started, uh, is to know when it's good to push back, Right. Uh, if, if there's something that uh, is impossible to, to factor into your existing code base and you can express why it may make sense to at least stop, put the brakes on and say, here's why I would object to this and what I would suggest instead, or maybe we try to defer this uh, or add this in a different piece of software, but don't overdo it and try to accomplish every single aim in one release. Um, and then the eliminate, eliminate waste, pare down your code. Uh, his comments, be relentless while doing it. One thing I keep running into in software all the time is lots of commented out blocks of code. If you can comment it out, you can delete it and look at it later and get, <laughs> you know, that's the biggest thing. You can always go back and find it um, if you, you really need me, to. You reminded me of a presentation I gave uh, last year, uh, Zip Code Wilmington, which is a, a boot camp school in, in Delaware, a great program. And uh, a number of chariot folks have done presentations, mentoring sessions, uh, interview preparation for students that are in and coming out of that bootcamp program. But I did a talk, um, things I wish I had known like, you know, 20 years ago or when I was starting out in my career and touches on some of the things that you were talking about. I may, uh, maybe I'll post a link to that. It's on GitHub. Yeah, that'd be really nice. Um, here's another big one I, I, I keep running into constantly, dependencies. Um, and we've run into this for years and years and years of different projects where uh, there'll be dependencies selected on a project without real regard of what it means to use that dependency, right? So um, you might pick a, a framework that uh, sunsetted three years later and you didn't pay attention. Happens all the time. It's, it's, it's one of those things where if you have a ton of dependencies, then revisiting your software five or six years later, you might find that two or three of them are dead. So then what do you do? Can you upgrade your software if one of the core pieces of your software can't be upgraded? Then you have another problem. So try to pick software, you know, that you absolutely need to use as a dependency, make sure that it's well supported, make sure that it's active, make sure that the bug list of it is not crazy. Um, you know, if, if there's lots of, is this project dead stuff on GitHub, that's a big problem. And then just don't use things if you don't need to, if you can find a very simple replacement for it, you can go that route. Um, but, uh, you know, just consider that it may not always be the right thing to pick a, a quick dependency, especially in Node. We saw it in Ruby, for example, where people did a ton of uh, stuff in a Rails app that used all these libraries and then tried to upgrade it from Rails, let's say two to three or three to whatever, and they couldn't because half the projects were dead. Yeah. So just- or, you know, I think I've noticed that folks will start with a template from another project or a starter thing that has way too many things pulled in or things that are just not gonna be needed for the thing you're specifically working on. 
So if you do start with a starter template, or if you're doing a spring project and you, and you look at an example thing out there, that's like getting every dependency imaginable. Yeah. It's okay to start with, but once you get something working, start removing the dependencies and figuring out what you actually need and paring it down because it will rear its ugly head in ways you don't realize at runtime. I know it's so tempting. It's almost like a honeypot for developers to grab those templates, yeah. you know, and it's true. I mean, especially the ones that are like the batteries included, here's this big script that does everything, you know, and it has logging and reporting and monitoring and tracing and, and all those libraries, if they're picked randomly because that work for that stack five years later, are they going to be there? You don't know. So anyway, this is a really good one. There's also a follow on discussion. He references in a Y Combinator article that I think is good kind of to peruse through when you're bored, um, get people's opinions on stuff like that. It's always good to see what other people think and join in if you feel like talking about it. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm a, a fan of Vim, as we've probably mentioned 650 times on the podcast. So um, it turns out that Vim 9 was released uh, in June. So VI was my first editor on a computer. Uh, I, I used a, a Unix box way back in high school, a billion years ago, and I learned VI. It's like my first editor I ever, I ever learned to use. So Vim has been with me for my entire career in some way, shape, or form, and to the point where I use it as an editor plugin for all my editors. You can look at me and scoff if you're an Emacs person, and I completely understand what you're saying because I'd feel the same about Emacs. Um, but you know, people go in either of those camps or they go in a neither of those camps type of uh, angle. So it depends on the developer, really. But uh, Vim's been around for a long time. They've done a lot of things to speed up Vim. I personally didn't think Vim was all that slow until I started loading plugins into it to try to get some things done, which is when I decided, for the most part, I'm not going to use command line Vim. I'll just use a Vim plugin on my IDE, which solves the problem of doing all the other things Vim doesn't do that well uh, for me. But so, for example, if you want to do code fill-in features, right, um, or macros or things like that, IntelliJ is a fantastic tool for that. Visual Studio Code also really good for that. So you can do a lot of that stuff in an IDE. So, But if you're a pure command line person and you don't want to use graphical interfaces, Vim plugins are great, except when you start adding a bunch of them. A, they're hard to configure, but B, they can slow things down. So one of the things they've done is they've completely revamped the way that you're doing programming with Vim plugins. Uh, and so you can see up to 10 to 100 times uh, speed up in certain commands. Uh, which means hopefully some things will run more zippy. And out of curiosity, I ran into the, something in here. Um, where is it on here? Well, it doesn't really matter. Um, it says somewhere in the article that the person that created Vim and is like the, as he put it, the, uh, what did he call himself? The benevolent uh, dictator of <laughs> Vim, uh, Bram Moulinar. Uh, is a Dutch computer programmer. So I found it interesting that the person who created it, and this has a personal connection to me, uh, person who created it, created it as the VI imitation on the Amiga, which was my first multitasking computer back in 1988. So Vim actually started as an Amiga editor that was VI-like, and I used that way back when. So it's kind of fascinating to know that back in 88, that was the beginning of what became uh, VI improved. It was originally called VI imitation. And that's where it came from. So, yeah, kind of cool that uh, he was uh, doing so much to build Vim. And he actually has just kind of stopped doing that, I think, um, uh, September 2021. He probably retired, I'm thinking. 
but uh, he was working at Google in Zurich doing some of his time doing Vim maintenance even then. So anyway, Vim, Vim 9. So John, I don't know if you saw this one, but apparently... I did. Uh, yeah, this one's kind of interesting. I don't know how I put all your articles at the end. I'm sorry. <laughs> I no, had them in the right order that. and then I, yeah, I was when our screens redid. I was going to include this article or I don't know if it was exactly this URL, but it was about the same topic. And there was just so much detail to it that I didn't have yeah. time to go through all of it. So I, I left it out. But I, I, once you go through it, I'll, I'll give my takeaway. Yeah, I did my skimming of it. But my understanding is that this is kind of a new uh, hardware chip uh, that's going to be built into the CPU die. Uh, and it's going to be part of uh, Microsoft AMD processors going forward or part of the set of chips for the AMD processors or Microsoft uh, um, or Intel, I guess, uh, processors yeah. going forward. That And it's already shipping in mobile Ryzen 6000 chips, which I have no idea what that is. Um, but the bottom line is it's, it's, it's going to be a bunch of security checks. Um, and so it's got a, a, what is a trusted module here um, for like holding secrets and, and verifying things, hardware cryptography um, and various other things in here. But some of the things it's going to have you do, it, it's going to start asking um, the hardware to disable third-party boot. So, for example, if you were to roll out Pluton uh, in the way that I think the Microsoft would like it to be, third-party uh, UEFI bootloaders for things like Linux won't work unless you switch this whole chip off. Um, or you get a certificate of a accepted and signed cert for an operating system that Microsoft would allow, which tells me it's not going to allow a lot of them. Um, but, you know, so the danger is that, you know, with all these potential benefits with lots of, you know, like trust at the hardware level and like defense, um, you know, compartmentalizing things, things so they can't access each other, um, you know, certificate based auth, all these things, there's a lot of control being placed on these machines. So they likely would be much more safe, potentially at a hardware level, but you might be limited in what you can do because you may not be able to actually access a third party operating system. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the fear is, you know, yes, yeah, a double-edged sword, you know, it can be a lot safer. The thing they mentioned in the, you know, at attestation servers where it can basically, if you have this chipset in there and you ask a computer, okay, what's your known state? Are you sanctioned? Are you whatnot? Like it can answer back and something else can verify that it can trust that computer. That's good. Yeah. I guess the downside is, you know, this could easily become like DRMing everything is one of the points the article yep. makes as a fear. And then you having no control over how your system actually operates or what you can do or not do to it, which is a lot like, you know, right to repair or, you know, talking about you and I are having that conversation about John Deere equipment. It's like, are we getting yeah. to a point where we're not going to be able to do anything with and they'll, and what can we put on? What can we not put on? So I don't know. I, I have mixed thoughts about about where this could go yeah i get all the safety concerns and i get why they want to put things in a jail kind of i mean it, it's basically going down to the road of mac os ios android of making it that you have to basically jailbreak your computer if this is really going to be enforced to do anything <laughs> special which means then you can't verify the trustable attributes of your computer unless you disable that jailbreak 
Um, right. So, so the, I hope we don't go down that road. Right. So I think there's great use cases for this when it comes to defense sure. and government and finance. Yep. Um, but it'd be nice if there were options here. Like, can you buy a computer that has this or can you buy a computer that doesn't have this? Sounds like we're headed to a point where, you know, all the all the CPUs are going to eventually have this. So it won't really be a choice unless we choose to run on older hardware. But then cloud could say, hey, we're not going to talk to your older hardware that doesn't implement this stuff. So then yeah. you'd have a brick sitting around. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right. So Gabriel uh, Steven, uh, this is the, the writer of the article. Um, and so his interesting comment here about Windows 11, right? So uh, Windows 11, by almost requiring uh, MBEC, uh, which I forget which part of that that is. Um, but anyway, trusted uh, TPM 2.0, secure boot, et cetera, is trying to get people used to a Pluton light experience. Plutani. <laughs> um, Windows 11 is a stepping stone with security requirements to match. And then with Windows rumored to return to three-year version cycle with Windows 12 in 2024 and Microsoft clearly being less afraid of cutting off large swaths of old PCs, it would not shock me, he says, if Windows 12 makes Pluton a system requirement. So this could be something where they're kind of softening it up a little bit uh, and getting to the point where, okay, Windows 12, you got to use Pluton. Um, we'll see. I know that we have similar, you know, issues um, in the in the Mac world where, you know, like on, on the new Macs, M1 Macs, there's been a hard time trying to figure out how to get M1 Mac to boot Linux. Although now I understand there is a bootloader for one version of Linux that they figured out, but it's been quite the effort to kind of work around that stuff. Um, so we'll have to see where this goes. Um, you know, I think what Windows would like to have you do is use their, um, you know, running Linux on top of Windows stuff, um, which I forget the name of already, but um, Windows, well, Windows uh, system host or whatever it is, WSL. So I think they'd like to have you basically virtualize it inside of Windows and have it run its kernel alongside as opposed to you actually booting in Linux and having a full Linux experience. And this is just another way to, on that end, lock that in. So we'll have to keep an eye on this. This could easily lead to a walled garden approach eventually about yeah. what be installed on your computer or run safely or not. So be, actually, it'd be interesting to see what which companies are sponsoring funding this technology. For sure, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, so yeah. I, I know that uh, it seems like um, this originally came out with the Xbox One and then yep. Azure Sphere. Um, so certainly Microsoft and then the hardware vendors probably are like salivating to get something like this in there. All right, so um, let's go to Amazon Prime Day 2022. Yes, so um, for folks that don't know, Amazon Prime Day is basically like Amazon's Black Friday, but not on Black Friday. Um, and it's, it's last, I think, two days, two, three days. I forget the, the duration. I actually bought some stuff during it. But what I found interesting in this article is every year, um, Jeff Barr and his team, I don't know if it's the same author every every year, has been tracking metrics on AWS usage during Prime Day because it's a huge mm. day for massive spikes. So they have to prepare well ahead of time and they have to have a lot of observability and things in place to be able to manage this. And 2016, 2017, 2019, 2020. So since 2016, he's been tracking this. And I'll just mention a few metrics that I found really interesting here. So um, Amazon Aurora processed 288 billion transactions um, stored 
1,849 terabytes of data and transferred 749 terabytes of data. Another big one was for Amazon EC2, Amazon basically increased their EC2 footprint by 12%. And if you think about that, that is 12% of, is huge. Um, yeah. And something interesting, like this resulted in an overall server equivalent footprint that was only 7% larger than that of Cyber Monday 2021. And that was due to increased adoption of AWS Graviton 2 processor. So, I mean, just imagine the scale of business that they're going through on Prime Day that they do that. And then, you know, there's a lot of other things like 152 petabytes of EBS storage, um, 33,000, sorry, petabytes, 33,000 Prime Day email messages per second. Um, I mean, the list goes on. Um, It's just insane how they did all that and that all that's tracked here. So I think if, and there's links to different services here and explanations, and then they mentioned something about AWS infrastructure event management. If you're if your business is preparing to do something similar or having to deal with ma- massive spikes for short periods of time. So um, definitely recommend looking at this just to, it, it, your head will be spinning when you look at the numbers. Can you imagine if that was a customer, what the bill would be? <laughs> it would be it's good that they own it. <laughs> well, it's funny, but internally they get billed for, they don't even Amazon internally, you have to be a customer of Amazon in Amazon. So you don't just uh-huh. get to use the structure for free you get billed for it. I wonder if so they publish that. Um, yeah, that'd be, it'd be interesting if they actually put that. What's, what's the actual bill? That, that's hilarious. Uh, maybe, <laughs> I wonder if there's a around that somewhere. Um, oh, man. Yeah. And someone could probably extrapolate it from all these numbers here from SQS Global Messages, for example. So, yeah, if you're thinking of using some of this uh, infrastructure, realize they use it to run Prime Day. So, if you architect it right, if you architect it right, if you give yourself enough redundancy and, and uh, you know think about all the things you need to think about, you could certainly scale to whatever your credit card can support. You know. All right, and now we have tech giants want to manage leap second to stop internet crashes. Oh yeah, so, so that extra tick, huh? Yeah. Further than you know, the the Earth's rotational speed changes over time, and you know our clocks and Earth rotation speed. And our calendars don't match. So we have to correct for that, you know, leap years, leap days, leap seconds. So, but the leap second is really minor. If we were not to do that, it really wouldn't make much of a deviation for most of the kind of work that um, people use modern computers for. And apparently they say that if we leave that out, it'll be like 2000 years before it actually becomes a significant issue at which point it can be corrected. But having to do this causes a lot of internet crashes and and servers uh, dying and things not syncing up correctly and things going out of skew. So the pain that fixing this causes is a lot more than the actual fix of what it, what it solves. So um, I thought it was interesting to bring this up because we were talking about Y2K earlier and, and things like that. And now this is just another variant of, hey, seems like seems like we've never truly solved the date time issue. There's always going to be um, problems with it. And I kind of wonder now, are we going way too far in trying to be completely p- precise and correct? Yet for most use cases, it really does not matter. So Google, I found it interesting that Google, Microsoft, Meta and Amazon together are trying to scrap the leap second. And um, let's see what it says. So 
or launch a public effort Monday to scrap the leap second, an occasional extra tick that keeps clocks in sync with Earth's actual rotation. Um, U.S. and French timekeeping authorities concur. So it seems like there's a lot of weight behind wanting to stop dealing with fixing the leap second for now. I haven't read through all the other things that this um, links, but again, like I said, it causes more problems than it solves right now. So yeah, the article here is a CNN article, which I'm gonna have to read up on. That looks pretty interesting to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, the leap second change triggered a massive Reddit outage in 2012. Oh, well, Reddit. Oh, well. Uh, <laughs> although I like Reddit. Re related problems with Mozilla, LinkedIn, Yelp, and airline booking service Amadeus. Um, at 2017, the leap second glitch at Cloudflare knocked a fraction of the network infrastructure company's customer servers offline. Yeah, so right. That, that's This is not wonderful. Um, and yeah, I mean, how often do we really tweak the leap second? Yeah. Every couple I, of years? I don't know. Right. And then like, it was funny, the, the thread in, in slash dot, you know, brings some interesting points, like where if you're doing astronomy, it's, it is very important that you oh, be yeah. exactly correct. But most of our software that we write for businesses, this, this would be insignificant. It's funny. It's like, you know, people with astronomy, and I'm a slight nerd, but we have much, much bigger nerd <laughs> astronomy and chariot, right. but um, like, you know, you got sidereal time, which is, or side real, however you say it, where it's the time of where the heavens are at any given moment. So I'm sure you'd find services that come up with those leap second adjusted clocks for that kind of thing. That probably would need to be part of this, but then the rest of the internet could stay on, you know, non-leaped time, so to speak. So I'm sure there's ways we, they, they could work around it, but it would be a big effort, I'm sure. Pretty interesting. All right. Uh, well, I think, is that everything or do we have one more? Nope, that's it. All right, so that's everything. What's that? There was one more. Oh, yeah. Uh, let me see here. Let me see if I missed it. Uh, which uh, one yeah. was that? Using GPT-3 to explain how code works. Oh, yeah. Let me grab that real quick. All right. So using GPT-3 to explain how code works. Take it away, Sujan. So GPT-3 is a, you know, an AI machine learning language model um, that I believe OpenAI created, if I'm not mistaken. I believe that. Um, and yes, it's OpenAI. They provide access to GPT-3. Um, again, allows you to perform a wide variety of natural language tasks, translate natural language um, between different languages, translate natural language to code. Um, so it's a model that's being heavily used by many companies and OpenAI licenses and and sells it to other companies. And I believe there are some open source, um, smaller versions of it as well, or free versions. I haven't done too much research on it. But anyway, um, a lot of these language models are being increasingly used to introspect code that humans write. Um, hmm. Probably what eventually where you know, computers can write that code instead of us. So if, if anyone's looked at GitHub Copilot, um, I haven't played around with it yet, but it's basically like a pair programmer where it has access to tons of open source code on GitHub that is analyzed and learned from. And apparently the initial reviews I've read about um, GitHub Copilot, not to go on a tangent, is that it actually is surprisingly well for certain use cases and things like um, SQL queries or certain types of business logic or algorithms and things that, you know, it's already seen many, many patterns of through other open source repositories out there. Um, that's only going to improve over time as it amasses more code in its training um, pipeline. So GPT-3 here is being used to look at a piece of code that let's say you wrote six months ago and then someone comes on board and is like, what the hell does this piece of code do? I have no idea. There's no comments. I, I don't know what's going on. There's no readme. Um, 
where it will go through the code and then try to generalize what it's doing and, and spit that generalized description out um, in English um, prose. So um, I actually think as a first pass, this could be very helpful if you're just trying to make you know heads or tails of something. Obviously, it's not going to have the intent behind something. It's not going to understand the why, but it may help cut down the amount of time it takes to understand a body of code that you have not looked at before. One of the examples they actually give here, which I found interesting, is a regular expression. So I took the regular expression and then converted that into an English description of what it's doing. <laughs> that is really cool because we've all looked yeah, it's at- better than I could do. <laughs> yeah. We've all looked at large regular expressions before and it's like, huh? And, you know, I would go mm -hmm. into like, I would cut and paste into a thing that I, I think it was like regex coach or something where you could then, it would break it apart. You could do test strings through it. You could like step through different parts of regular expression and it was great for debugging, but it'd be great to start off with this first. Yeah. So yes, tell me the what. I mean, I can then try to start inferring the how, but, be, you know, okay. So what is it attempting to do? Um, and like, what, what is the actual breakdown of the regular expression? I find it's really interesting. So it basically says first group string matches any text enclosed in double or single quotes. Yep. Float floating point third in. It's really cool that it actually is able to break that up like that. And then he's asking about like, well, what does this thing do? And it's right. a modifier so that lets it span multiple lines. That's very cool. It's interesting that we're, you know, it, we're, we're going out of the realm of like, oh, that's neat. Maybe we could do that someday to like this stuff is now being productized and sold and like GitHub is actually part of their service to be able to have like a, a robot, essentially an AI robot helping you write small snippets of code or make suggestions. And again, I, I think it's it's real now. It's not something that's just going to go away. It's only going to improve. And I think there will be a point where you will literally be starting with code written by and generated by a computer or it will be part of your team. Well, yeah, it's like an expert on your team. Code reviews and or helping to like write certain uh, unit test cases for coverage, not for not for business logic or intent, but for like yeah. security, for example. How I hit all the uh, branches of this code, for example. I love this one. So it's like it's given this little enamel uh, polyfill. What and, is enamel? Uh, so this, I don't know, just it's called enamel. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> uh, so what it says is though that it's a polyfill for the Shadow DOM API. If a browser browser doesn't have it um, for like CSS shadowing of I don't know I, I'm never really good at the Shadow API concepts, but it, it's for for basically how to apply styles uh, in a certain way with the Shadow DOM. Um, and so then he's like, okay, that's fine, but how does it do that? And then it goes to an actual description. Yeah. That's nuts. Oh, and here we go. Here's some SQL. <laughs> that's, like, that's great. All right. Yeah, this is fun. I'm The one thing I've run into, and I'll just do my one quick observation on like things like Copilot. Copilot's great when it's great, and it's insane when it's not. So sometimes it picks something, and you're like, no, stop. And you have to turn it off because it keeps suggesting things when you just want to do a simple assignment. And it goes, how about see if there is stuff? No, I didn't want that. You tried yeah. it out. I did. I, I used Copilot for about a week when I was doing some coding before ETE and I had to turn it off because it annoyed me too much, but that was before the recent beta or the release, I guess. So um, I, I might go back and see it again, but certainly GPT-3 for analyzing things looks pretty cool. Like I'd like to get um, 
it, what is it? It's like you have to sign up for the playground interface on GPT-3. Um, and then you can upload code to it and try it out. So that'd be kind of cool to like just interact with GPT-3 itself instead of just having to use Copilot turned on all the time. It's kind of cool. All right, neat. Okay, well, that's our show for the week. So listen, anybody with any kind of comments, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can tweet us at, at TechCast or email us at techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com. And uh, we really appreciate you watching and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. The one thing I will say is coming up, we're going to do a series of uh, front end articles uh, or, or sessions with our, our own Drew to Carm. And he's going to be doing some videos about uh, what we call not so front end, front end, all the things you really need to know about front end development uh, and things you have to wrestle with. So uh, we're going to have a series of those in place of news for the next couple of sessions. And hopefully you find those really useful. So, all right. So until we see you again, I'm Ken Rimple. Sujan Kapadia. And we'll see you soon. Take care.